So when we speak of the Christian Advent season, we're referring to a season of great expectation. Actually, Advent means eager expectation. You can eagerly await the advent of the new iPhone or the, uh, the advent of a coming marriage or graduation. But during this season, we celebrate the long-awaited Messiah. And whenever God enters the scene throughout history as recorded in the Bible, we see a longing, an expectation for him, at least in some. But most of us don't think about the spiritual battle that rages every time God enters the scene. From the very beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, and the spiritual battle ensues. Satan successfully tempts Adam and Eve to sin, and God catches, up, catches us up in his rescue plan. And as we read through God's history in the Bible, we later come to another story that we just read about where the spiritual battle is seen plain as day. A man named Noah is asked to build an ark, and God wipes out all of humanity minus a handful with a flood. We see this theme throughout Scripture, judgment for rebellion against God and rescue for those who walk in his paths. And when God the Son, Jesus, came back as a baby during the first advent, the same dark battle took place. The governing authority, Herod, tried to kill him, and his own people, for the most part, denied or ignored him. Same with his ministry, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. God provided mounting warnings, increased warnings of judgment throughout redemptive history. The rescue plan in a nutshell throughout the Bible is this. Let God rescue you from sin while there's still time because judgment is coming. God wants to rescue us from this day of the Lord we've been reading about in Revelation for the last several weeks where he'll judge those who don't follow him and he'll rescue those who do. We read examples of this constantly uh, in our Advent devotionals that many of you might be reading during this season. I know the one that I'm reading that's, that's simply scripture, especially the early ones, they're, all, they're primarily about his second coming and his judgment. He came to save and to rescue us. It's not a story about a sweet little baby as much as it is God coming into our crisis, coming into our need to rescue us from sin that we might have life. So from the very beginning of God's story, there have been offers of rescue from coming judgment from things that are limited, uh, like the flood, for a finite portion of humanity, foreshadowing the Messiah who would come as a baby to rescue mankind from sin and then bring devastating wrath to the earth and mankind for sin in the final and full day of the Lord that all other judgments in the Bible foreshadow. To make way for the second advent we're looking forward to that we just prayed about together when Jesus brings the new earth out of the ashes of the old. Eden restored from before sin marred us in our world. And we'll look at that next week. We'll look at what is to come for those who know and love Jesus, the, the new Eden, the way it was supposed to be all along. God was silent in the time period between the last Old Testament prophet and the coming of Christ. For 400 years, our canon remained closed. And that's called the intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But there's another period that we've been reading about called the tribulation that will, will start when God brings his final judgment that's yet to come in redemptive history and the end of that time. And that's called the tribul tribulation. And God will be anything but silent during that time period. 
He brings warning of, warnings of wrath and then in his grace measure judgments that are mounting in their intensity to get the attention of those who are still far from him. And I don't know about you guys, but as I've been reading about this, it's given me heartburn. I mean, this is serious stuff. I mean, literally, reading this stuff has given me heartburn. I mean, I'm on medication the last several weeks because of reading about God's wrath. I have a hard time with it. And maybe you do too. In fact, at times, I'm equal parts confused, terrified, and even doubtful. I mean, this is fantastical stuff, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about beasts and plagues and trumpets and scorched earth and stuff that we don't experience in our day-to-day, right? Uh, hopefully, we don't, because if you do, you know, we need to talk afterwards and you need to see a physician, you know, because we're not in that time period yet. And I would die for these truths, don't get me wrong, and God might ask me to. But emotionally, it can stir doubt in me sometimes, and maybe it does in you. God's judgment, marrying his wrath with his love is a very difficult thing. So why don't we pray for faith to see that and and believe it? Lord, right now, we pray that you would give us faith to believe in and walk in your word, to ask difficult questions if we're struggling, not be afraid of our doubt. Lord, we thank you that you welcome our doubt. And Lord, I pray that you'd protect ones here tonight who view God's wrath and they view it through a lens of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, or maybe even spiritual abuse from a parent or a pastor or some other authority figure, Lord, and they look at wrath and uh, your wrath, Lord, and it fills them with terror and it freezes them, it handicaps them. Lord, I pray that you'd minister to them tonight, Holy Spirit, and bring them peace. Lord, for those who are far from you, I do pray that there would be terror at your coming judgment. Lord, and in your grace, I pray they would see your rescue, that you offer your hand. You, not only do you offer your hand, you come running with arms wide open to those who are far from you, just like you did for me and so many of those uh, uh, in this room. So please, may those far from you call on you to rescue them from sin tonight. And may those who are close to you but afraid of this part of your character find healing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God's wrath is a necessary part of his grace, believe it or not. We worship him for character traits such as love, provision, grace, mercy, and righteousness, but his wrath makes us a little queasy, doesn't it? But the reality is that we can worship God for his wrath, not in spite of it. In other words, we don't just swallow the pill of wrath with one big gulp and then get on to characteristics like love and provision and all the rest and enjoy and celebrate those parts of God's uh, character. There are a handful of reasons tonight we can specifically and should worship God for his wrath, ways in which we can do it specifically and uh, reasons why we should worship God for his wrath. So I want to go through most of chapter 15 and 16 at a pretty good pace, and then we'll jump into this question, how do we worship God in his wrath? So last week we read of seven visions ending with a vision of the last judgment God would pour out. So we're in the very last judgment, okay? So we're picking up in Revelation chapter 15, verse 5. Revelation 15, verse 5. It says... After this, I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. 
Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So seven angels delivering God's seven last plagues through this imagery of bowls filled with God's wrath poured out on earth on those far from God. We see judgment mounting and becoming more intense, don't we? We went from the seals open, decimating a fourth of the earth, uh, and then the announcing of the trumpets, another judgment where a third of the earth was destroyed, and now bowls poured out over the entire earth. So we see it mounting. And it's worth repeating that God in his grace gradually releases his wrath. He could do it in one foul swoop, just like he did in Noah's time. But he gives people time, even in this time period, to repent. We also see that these plagues mirror the plagues delivered to Egypt. Uh, The plagues delivered to Egypt were to motivate Pharaoh to soften his heart to release God's people, the Israelites, from slavery, oppression, and captivity. You see, the Egyptian plagues were meant to move Pharaoh's heart, but the final plagues we're reading about here are of more weight because they're trying to get the hard hearts of men to turn to God while there's still time, that they might find grace. So let's jump into the seven bowls of judgment poured out on those who took the mark of the beast as we discussed last week. So Revelation 16, verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to these seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. So those who have taken the mark of the beast, and we've said that this is likely a a government authority, a government that's being used by the enemy and his demons to deceive God's people, perhaps, and especially those who are on the fence as to who to follow. Uh, It could be an individual, but again, I think in context there, it is speaking about a governing authority. And these people who follow the beast will be marked with sores. So we see all through Revelation this theme of God's people being marked through a variety of different symbols and those who are following the beast, the enemy being marked as well. Whether those are figurative, literal, whatever, doesn't matter. It will be very clear. And here we see it'll be very clear. And this is a grace these marks of those who are not following Christ, are, they're literally wearing the mark of their sin, the consequence of their sin. It's a grace because it will hopefully motivate these ones who are far from Christ to turn while there's still time, and it'll give discernment to believers to know who's who, that they might not be deceived as to who's following God's agenda and who's not. So let's move on to the next bowl here again, because I said I want to keep a good pace so we can answer that question, how do we worship God in his wrath? Revelation 16, verse three. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. So we see before the judgments were uh, increased judgment on the waters, both fresh water and salt water, where a portion of sea life died. Now it's all. And I don't know if this is literal blood or what. I, I don't think so because it says it's like the blood of a dead man. It doesn't say it is but regardless, it could be a bacteria, it could be whatever, but, but life will be ruined because that's what sin does. So when the end comes, life is choosing God. 
Sin is, sin means without life. So when we choose life without God, we get death. Literally, or I should say physically, sin brings death, and spiritually it brings death forever, for all of eternity. So it destroys water. All life is being vanquished aside from those who love God. Um, Creation itself pays the price for our sin, but wait until the end of the story that we'll get to next week. It's awesome. Or you know what? I should pull a C.S. Lewis here. It's really the end of the Bible is really just the introduction because we've got all eternity in his presence. And even we were singing tonight, I hope you were, but when we were singing, were you thinking about the angels and the heavenly hosts that we've read about that now we can't bear the weight of that glory, but that one day we will? That we'll, we'll be singing alongside them. And this is practice because they're worshiping alongside us right now. Isn't that, I mean, that's really exciting. That, that breathes a lot of faith and life into my worship that there is something way bigger going on than do I feel like I'm having a warm and fuzzy worship night, you know, I mean, or is Matt on key? He's always on key. I mean, Matt's always on key. But uh, all the dumb questions that all of us can get distracted by during worship. Uh, when we think about the fact that, man, God in his majesty is being worshiped in a way that we can't even physically handle right now, our hearts would explode. Um, so the third is in the next verse, the third piece of this, this last plague. Revelation 16, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Those who don't turn to God will at this point, and always throughout history, will get what they deserve for sin. Rebellion against God is worse than murder. It's worse than treason. It's, wor- it's the worst sin we can imagine to turn our hearts away from God and towards self and our own idols because it's against the creator and the king. So now all water life is gone. We move into the fourth here, verse eight. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify God or glorify him. You see this throughout history, don't you? It's so common. After all this common grace, even that we see around us, we see the birth of a child, right? We see the change of seasons. We experience love and friendship. We experience loss and heartache, maybe the loss of a family member, a loved one, and and we get the time and space to look at the bigger questions of life. Why are we here? And we still don't turn towards the healer. We still don't turn towards the creator. It's been that way all along, and it's that way here. Even in the midst of such pain and suffering, people are still rebelling against God. Seen this so many times where ones are freed from addiction. You know, I, I've got a friend, goes to, he went to AA and found freedom. Never recognized that those were Christian principles that helped him find freedom. Still rebelling against God. Ones who have gone through unbelievable tragedy still have not turned their eyes towards Jesus. Let's move on to the fifth. 
Revelation 16, verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. Finally, God withdraws here the authority he gave to this beast, this governing authority uh, who is allowed to unleash hell on the earth and the people of the earth, and he condemns them to hell. And still, those people who are left, who are not following Jesus, refuse to repent. So at this thing, there's barely anything left on earth. We're talking barely any life, scorched earth. You know, the earth is burned. They're probably experiencing unbelievable physical pain and are near death. And even with their last breath, they're rebelling against God. Uh, Now, the next one here, the six, introduces a dark trinity, a demonic trinity. Revelation 16, verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. So this false, dark, demonic trinity consisting of the false prophet, the beast, and the dragon that we've talked a little bit about will prepare for one last spiritual battle between good and evil, light and darkness. Spoiler alert here, it'll end with a decisive win to say the least for our God. To end the battle that started in the garden to which every judgment and rescue of God has been pointing to all along. This final and forever victory of our Savior and King. Finally, the last one, number seven, Revelation 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So it's the greatest earthquake that mankind will ever have experienced. And a hundred pound hail, again, literally or figuratively doesn't matter. All hell is being let loose on earth. And still, ones will curse God. They'll blame God. They'll curse God and see uh, uh, darkness as a good thing, right? They'll see evil as a good thing, and they'll see God as evil, a good thing as bad because of God's wrath here. Just as many today curse God for injustice and oppression today that they see on the television. They see a school shooting, and how could God allow this? Or they see oppression and poverty. How could God allow this? Well, in reality, we get, we've get, we received what we wanted, which was life without God, which brings what? Death. It always brings death. And God in his mercy has provided the church to be a message of hope to those who are spiritually lost and to be the hands, feet, and heart of Christ to those who are physically oppressed and suffering injustice. So we really shouldn't look to, our, to God as much as ourselves on both ends. He's given a vehicle through which healing and restoration can come. 
And he's also given an answer to this sin problem, that we're the ones who broke the deal, and he gives us grace to return to him. We turn our backs on God because that's what humanity does. Some passively by simply thinking they're not very spiritually spiritual, so they, give, they don't give God a second thought, all the way to those who aggressively blame God for what man shows, as we clearly see here. But in all this extreme talk of wrath and judgment, we see something peculiar. We see God's people in several different places. We talked about one of them last week, but singing songs of worship, worshiping God, for his wrath. And when I stumbled on this, I started looking at all the cross-references in the Bible, and there are many where God is worshiped for his wrath. And I thought, man, I don't know that I've ever heard a message about worshiping God in his wrath. I mean, we don't don't have many worship songs. I think there are a couple old hymns that do worship God for his his judgment. Um, What's that one that we sing? Do you guys remember? Kimball's not here tonight. Yeah, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. We send that quite a bit, and that one is definitely uh, does that. So an example that we haven't read yet is Revelation 19, verse 1. I want to read that now. So this is John speaking again, the author. This is the vision of Christ given to John of the end. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Babylon, as we've said, is a picture of immorality. It's a picture from the original Babylon all the way to current times to these future events that have yet to take place that we're reading about now. Babylon's a picture of immorality, of living life without God. And here, God's people and these heavenly hosts are worshiping God for his wrath. Remember, do you see it here? They worship God for avenging the blood of the martyrs we read about in chapter six weeks ago and elsewhere. That's a difficult concept, isn't it? How can God, who's full of grace and love, also be a God of wrath? Aren't those mutually exclusive characteristics? I mean, how do these saints in this passage worship God joyfully for the fact that these evil ones, that the smoke from this evil demonic force is going to rise up for all eternity? But here's how and why we worship God in his wrath, not simply in spite of it. To worship God in his wrath, we must start with a high view of God. We're going to get into some big picture stuff here and then into some practicals. To worship God in his wrath, we must start with a high view of God. Again, going back to Revelation 15, the second part of verse 2. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. This is one example among many in scripture where God is worshiped for his sovereignty. In other words, he is in charge. He is the one who calls black, black, white, white, good, good, bad, bad, uh, evil, evil, righteousness, righteousness. It's not up to our opinion. It's not up to our emotions or our perceptions. It's not defined by our circumstances or our experiences. 
Similarly, to worship God in his wrath, we must see God as feared by all. We just read in the song that we read last week from God's people worshiping him in the end, uh, uh, mirroring the same song that Moses sang in the Exodus, that Moses and his people. It said, who will not fear the Lord and bring glory to your name for you are holy. We see hundreds of examples in scripture that we're not to fear man or finances or catastrophe or heartbreak or loneliness or persecution or martyrdom or even the spiritual battle. We have but one fear and it's to be God. And here's the cool thing. We will choose what we're gonna fear. We will fear something because what we fear defines what we worship, doesn't it? If we fear uh, that we are gonna become financially destitute, and that's an obsessive fear, then we might worship money and security. And we might give our lives to the accumulation of wealth and to little else. If we fear loneliness, we might give ourselves to impure relationship after impure relationship, and that will become our worship, right? But if we fear God, we have no other fears. If we fear God and want to please him because he's sovereign and he's holy and he is not to be trifled with. Man, we got that message from Revelation, didn't we? He is not to be trifled with. You see, fearing a loving father is a grace that brings life. In a good, solid, functional, healthy Christian household, the father is feared. Not just loved, feared, because the kid knows way deep down, if I fear my father and his discipline, so to speak, then I'm going to be protected. Because a child knows, although they can't articulate it way deep down, that God loves them too much, or that their father loves them too much to let them run out in the street. Right? So there is fear there of discipline, and it's good, and it's right. How much more so with our heavenly father? The next one is similar here. To worship God in his wrath, we must see that God is to be glorified by all. In other words, he's worthy and ultimate and completely uh, uh, worthy of all of our praise above all else. Revelation 15, verse four. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Along the same lines, to worship God in his wrath, we must see that God is holy in all of his attributes, not just some. You can't take God's love without his wrath any more than you can take a car without a steering wheel or a cloud without a sky. You simply have to have one without the other. And we want God's wrath or his love is worthless. We want God to be a God of wrath or his love is worthless. If I say I love my child, but then don't care if they decide to bully another kid or cheat on the test, then my love, it's not really love. It's just license. No, my love requires indignation over transgression. Or does my wife love me if I commit adultery and she doesn't care? No, her rage is part of her love. If I break her heart, there must be anger or it's not love, it's simply indifference. God is not holy without wrath. We know this. Is there justice when a rapist runs free? Is there equity when labor laws are abused? Is there liberty for all if chaos is allowed to prevail in the streets through vandalism and looting? Of course not. Wrath poured out on those who break the law is something we want or sin wins the day. 
I know I'm saying the same thing in different ways here, but I wanna communicate this important truth because I know it's so hard for me included to marry God's wrath with his love. Moving on here, to worship God in his wrath, we must see that God is righteous in all his ways. Revelation 16, verse five. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, you are just in these judgments, O holy one. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So let me ask you this, who are we gonna trust? Sinful humanity's perspective on what God is allowed and not allowed to do in his wrath or his love? So in other words, if a human being says, how could God, a loving God, let someone go to hell? Or I'm not all that bad because I'm not like Hitler. I'm not a serial killer. So I'm really not all that bad. Are, are we gonna trust a tiny pea-sized brain of a human being who has an opinion on the creator of the universe who was and is and is to come? Do you know how ridiculous that is? If we even have one ounce of faith that God exists to say that our opinion matters one iota on who he is or what his plan is, is absolutely illogical and insane. I don't know about you, but I would rather trust these angels <laughs> who oftentimes we've said throughout this series are mistaken for God by those who come in contact with them, who says you are just in these judgments He's righteous in all his ways. He never judges wrongly. And revelation is clear. In the end, his judgments will be undeniably right. And we will join, join with these angels and say amen. No time out, no replay needed. God is right in all of his judgments. To shift gears a little bit here, to worship God in his wrath, we must see that God is loving towards humanity. He gives us time Man, if there's a major message in scripture, it's that we've blown it, judgment is coming, but God in his patience and kindness is giving us time to repent. You might be here tonight because God is giving you yet another sign, come to me. Even in Revelation, he takes years to bring about the final judgment. There's a clear conclusion to all of this. God is infinitely worthy of eternal worship. So let's unpack some of these broad truths a little bit here as I move into the second third of my talk. No, I'm just kidding. I'm getting close to the end here. Uh, to worship God in his wrath, we must have a high view of God and a humble view of man. Does that make sense? Our culture worships man and has a very low view of God, the opposite. We have, in our high view of man and low view of God, denounced the sovereignty of God. All of us, every single one, in Revelation and throughout history, through our desire for sexual sin, for our desire for materialistic wealth, for our desire to worship our own success and agenda above God's. We also, in our desire to elevate man and devalue God, we've disregarded the fear of God. The plagues on Egypt didn't turn the hard heart of Pharaoh, nor did the infinitely more horrific plagues in Revelation 16 of those who worship the beast. 
We always go back to sin. We go back to self and personal agenda over God and his agenda. We can't help it. We're infected with sin like it's an incurable disease. God alone deserves praise, but we praise everything but him. We also disregard the holiness of God by questioning his character. Saying things like, aren't all gods the same? Don't all gods promote good living and decency? You can't disregard God like I used to disregard a Little League coach's call in a game when I coached. You know, it doesn't matter what we think when it comes to God's character. It doesn't matter at all. His word is final. There's one God. He alone is holy, and to say otherwise is blasphemous. To try to somehow defame the glory of God by saying all gods are the same. It's preposterous. Would you ever say that to a person who's given you something just your most precious gift you've ever received. Hey, all gifts are the same. And you know, all friends are the same. You're nothing unique. No, God, to say that all gods are the same is an insult, a huge insult to every religion and all of its serious followers because all of them claim exclusivity. And we've disregarded in our low view of God and high view of man the love of God. In Romans 2, 4, it says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? The only reason he didn't just wipe us off the face of the earth as soon as we sinned is because of his grace, because his desire is that all men be saved. I remember taking advantage of God's patience and his forbearance and his grace as a teenager. I didn't know Jesus yet, but I... I kind of thought I did, or at least I don't think I knew Jesus then. Uh, but I would tell my friends and, and have thoughts like, you know, I'll follow God when I get a little bit older, but now I want to have fun. You know, that wasn't fun. All it was, it was, it was, it was stuff that still to this day, as a 42-year-old man, I'm still suffering the consequences of some of those choices that I made way back then. All it brings is death. When we choose self over God, it will only bring death. It has always brought death to every human being, and you and I are no exception. But man, we're hard-hearted, and we read it throughout Scripture. These people who are still around, still on the earth, were again experiencing unbelievable horrors that would destroy all our mental health, would corrupt all of our relationships if we were to experience it today, would be absolutely horrifying. And yet still, they were hard-hearted. And I was in the same boat. Now, don't tune me out. In all of this, we are infinitely deserving of God's wrath. His word tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of his glory, and even one sin is enough to condemn us. His word tells us that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags and that all is sin. Even the good things we think that we're doing are still stained with false motives. Sin passed down generation to generation like an eye problem that evolves into a state of utter blindness through succeeding generations. We can't even make out what righteousness is on our own. We're blind. And catch this. The value of revelation is it shows the weight of sinning against the almighty God. Man, like no other book of the Bible. This is the result of life without God, total death and destruction. 
the magnitude of guilt for a sin. We need to focus in here. The magnitude, magnitude for the guilt of a sin is determined by the glory of the one sinned against. You know what I mean. If I sin against an ant by burning it with a magnifying glass, is that as big of a deal as killing another human being? Those who do think that, uh, you, you're, you're wrong yeah, on so many levels. You think that, you know, it's, it's far worse, right, to kill a human being. The magnitude of guilt for a sin is determined by the glory of the one sin against. Now, let's use another example. If I slap you in the face, it's an offense to be sure because you're a very important person. But the magnitude of that guilt is higher if I slap a police officer, right? Because he has more authority. The magnitude of that sin is even higher if I slap the mayor because he has even more. What about the president of the United States? I'm not gonna be able to drop my hand before I'm killed or disabled because that's treason against the United States to lift a hand against the truck. The magnitude of that sin is so much greater than me sinning you, sinning against you by slapping you because of the glory, the authority of the person I'm sinning against. Not only is the magnitude of guilt for a sin determined by the glory of one sinned against, the severity of sin's punishment is always a reflection of the one you've sinned against. We see this in the Bible all over the place, but maybe no place more clearly than Romans 2.5. It says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Brothers and sisters, those who know Jesus Christ, we must, when we share the gospel, share God's wrath or we're really not sharing his grace. The whole message of the Bible is he's coming back to bless those who know him and love him, but he's also coming in wrath. God is more deserving of honor than any person, so the severity of sin against him through rejection is paramount, and the consequences, rightly so, disastrous. You know, God is, is not a person to be trifled with. He's not one that we can continue turn, to turn our back on and not have consequences. The only reason we don't experience his judgment now is because he's delaying out of grace and mercy. So we either choose all of grace or all of wrath. All of grace means we're declared not guilty and get what Jesus deserves because we're his kids, which is to reign with him forever in glory. Or we get what the enemy of our soul deserves, which is wrath for all eternity. We receive an inheritance either way. One, the inheritance of sin, which is wrath forever, and the other, the inheritance of Christ through faith in him, which is life and grace and love forever. You see, we struggle to worship God for his wrath because we have a low view of God and a high view of man, which is backwards. We think we're not that bad and we couldn't possibly warrant a life without God because we're good. We're not that bad. Again, we're not like Hitler. Whereas the reality we see in God's kingdom through the entire Bible is that the one thing we deserve is wrath, but thanks be to God, we can lean on the gospel. God sent his son, born of a woman, to take away our sin and make us co-heirs with Christ. Because at the cross, Christ took on the brutality of the scourging, the mocking, the hatred, the false accusation, and most importantly, separation from God. God express, expressed wrath towards himself that he might take on our sin. 
God the Father poured out his wrath on God the Son on the cross that we might be free of his wrath as his children. That's the value of this book, folks. We see the weight of his wrath. And brothers and sisters, he saved us from that. And those of you who are here and you're searching, God bless you. We're so glad you're here. We've been praying for you. He wants to save you from the wrath we've been reading about. And we need to pay attention here. Here's what those who indulge in sin deserve, which is all of humanity. We all deserve this. There's many verses like this. Isaiah 51, 17. Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. We deserve the cup of God's wrath drained to its dregs. We deserve the plagues and the seals and the trumpets that we're reading about. But look at what did Jesus did in the garden right before his crucifixion. It wasn't, Jesus is, the pain and agony that Jesus went through on the cross was horrific to be sure when his back was whipped for us, when the crown of thorns was placed on his head, when the nails were put into his wrist and his ankles. That was horrific. But what was far, far, far worse was God separating himself from his son, turning his face. You see, none of us have experienced God completely removing his hand from us. Do you know that? Even those of you who don't know Jesus, because you still experience the common grace of sunshine on your face and the fact that you're waking up every day. That is God's common grace. Jesus experienced complete separation from God for a brief time. He took on the wrath in a spiritual sense of what we're talking about here in Revelation. He took it on, folks. And we oftentimes think of it in a, in a positional legal way. Yeah, God took the wrath that I deserve. Jesus paid the penalty for my sins, so on and so forth. But this defines it in living color in Revelation. That Jesus took on the God who took on the wrath of the God who brought these horrific plagues, trumpets, and so on. In the garden, right before Jesus goes to the cross, listen to what he says. Matthew 26, verse 39. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and said, my father, if it is possible, may this cup, this cup we're talking about, may this cup be taken from me, yet not I will, but as you will. We mistakenly think it's just the cup of this physical suffering. No. It was his father turning his face from him. We know very little about what Jesus experienced when he, we know Jesus never died, but when he went into the tomb after his death for those, those few short days before he was resurrected. We have some hints in scripture, but we know very little. But we've been reading about it for weeks now, what he endured. For those, and, and it's a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery what he endured. The depths of God's mercy and grace and love are a mystery that's why Paul struggles with it in Ephesians. He says, you know, I pray, that you, I pray that God might open the eyes of your heart, that you might experience his love. And he goes into all this detail, this huge run-on sentence where you can tell Paul can't even catch his breath in Ephesians chapter one. And it's a mystery. And for those who know and love Jesus, they'll never experience the mystery of God's wrath that we've been reading about, that we really only know in part now. And five billion years from now, those of us who know and love Jesus we won't even be done with the appetizer of God's blessing and love and grace for us. But on the other end, those who are far from him, who choose to remain stiff-necked and rebellious towards God and go their own way, five billion years from now, it'll be as if, as if God's wrath has just begun. 
Jesus came to this earth to save you from that if you're in that place tonight. That's what the message of Christmas is. It is not Charlie Brown, okay? It is not Charlie Brown. The message of the Bible in Jesus is brutal on every page because Jesus is rolling up his sleeves and going to the least and the lost and the darkest places to win ones back to himself. Maybe you're in that place tonight, and if you are, I encourage you to talk to the person who brought you, someone who loves Jesus. Come up here and uh, on either side here and pray with members of the prayer team. Your prayers are confidential, and you can explore uh, maybe steps that God's calling you to tonight. And if you're sensing that call tonight, don't ignore it. Take advantage. Talk to someone who loves Jesus, again, up here or in your chair. The message of Christmas is that he came to save us from the wrath that we deserved to give us his life and his inheritance that we don't deserve. So if you're in a place tonight too where you struggle with his wrath, I mean, it's hard for you. It's hard for me. I've had ones pray for me throughout this series. Maybe that's something you want to pursue prayer for tonight. If you feel like your faith is in a place where, man, you've been on autopilot for a very long time, in James 5, it says that, uh, you know, if we, it says that, uh, um, uh, that we are to confess our sins and pray for each other, that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. You know, sometimes when we feel weak, we feel like, for good or bad, we've all been in this place, we just feel too weak to talk to God. We're just, we're done. And that's when we get others to pray for us. So take advantage of that tonight. Don't, don't be discouraged from coming up and... Uh, pursuing prayer tonight. Lord Jesus, we love you. We do thank you for your wrath. Lord, that it is a necessary part of your grace. Lord, that one day we thank you that you will fulfill all things. We might be alive during this time period we're reading about. Lord, but thank you that we will see it one way or another if we know and love you, Lord. And for those who are far from you, Lord, I pray that tonight they would see that you are a God gracious enough to reveal your plan so that ones might be saved while there's still time. I pray this in Jesus' name.